Today's scripture comes from Psalm 16 and Acts 2, 22 through 28, which can be found on pages 435 and 771 in your pew Bibles. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say to the people of the Holy Land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Verse 5. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I keep my eyes on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Will you make known to me the path of life? Will you fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand? Uh, Then in Acts 2, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan of foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. This is the word of the Lord. Oh man, it's good to be here together on Easter Sunday. And this is the final message actually of a series uh, based on a journey through Lent. It's a teaching series that Tim Keller, pastor in New York, uh, took us through on Wednesday evenings. And I would preach on the same passage that he would preach on on the Wednesday evening. And they were all psalms. Even this morning, one of the passages is a psalm. It's Psalm 16, which is a wonderful psalm that really speaks in a, it's really a prophetic piece that speaks to the security that we find in God. Uh, and Peter actually took that as his scripture passage. Like, I always have a passage, uh, uh, you know, or a couple of passages for the sermon, as the Tyndall's uh, just read. And uh, uh, this was Peter's passage for the very first sermon that was ever preached uh, in public, which is Acts chapter 2, right after Pentecost occurred. And he chooses actually Psalm 110, which we talked about last week, and then Psalm 16. Why? Because, again, it speaks to the security that we find in Christ. It talks about eternal security, ultimate security. So that's why Peter chose this as the text on which to preach that very first sermon. Now, if you're looking for a less message of security and assurance. You, you don't have to go any further than a contemporary philosopher named Simon Critchley. I've actually had to read some of his stuff, and he's the most depressing person I've ever read in my lifetime. He is a uh, philosopher, uh, philosophy professor up in New York, has written a lot of real uplifting books. You can, he's just a real melancholy dude. One of his bestsellers, and I'm not making this up, is Stop Living and Start Worrying. Why would you want to even buy that he did one on the meaning of life, and I'm not making this up, and the title is Very Little, Almost Nothing. I mean, what? Great. Sign me up. 
Probably his best-known book was written in 2008 called The Book of Dead Philosophers, and it chronicles how 190 of the most famous philosophers died. And there's really no message to it. It's just that, yeah, we die, and this is how this person died. And I was like, okay. And, and it's a really dull book. I found a few little snippets about a few philosophers that I liked. Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, died by holding his breath. I still want to find out the rest of the story. Why did that occur? Wilhelm Leibniz, who I remember studying in grad school, who, by the way, I dig the hair of um, Stephen Ray, or Sawyer Tyndall, but grow it out like that. I think it'd be great. Um, but Wilhelm Leibniz, he used to, he, his belief was we are in the best of all possible worlds. I don't know how, you know, he's supposed to be really bright. But anyway, he wound up dying uh, and was buried at night with only one friend in attendance. I don't know if you'd still say that was the best of all possible worlds. Julian Lamaitre, who was an avowed atheist, he was actually, actually what we call a me- me- mechanistic materialist, which means we're all just like machines and everything's predetermined. He's also very boring to read, but he died of indigestion caused by eating a huge amount of a truffle pate. Sorry about that. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you might have heard of Rousseau. He died of cerebral bleeding caused by a collision with a Great Dane. Not making this up. Uh, Royan Barté was hit by a dry cleaning van. Jean-Paul Sartre, you've probably heard of. One thing about Sartre that, of course, Critchley doesn't mention in his book was that Sartre right at the end of his life, became a theist. Um, many of you had to read him in high school. But just before he died, he said, I do not feel like I am the product of chance, but a being, but a, but being, a being whom only a creator could have put here. And he died in 1980. He had uh, struggled with uh, alcohol and drug abuse. And then A.J. Iyer, who was a resolute atheist, didn't believe in the afterlife until he choked on a piece of salmon and technically died. He had a near-death experience But out of that, he said that that near-death experience, and I'm quoting him, provided strong evidence that death does not end consciousness. And what I loved was a final quote in there. There was a bonus. Not only did he realize, hey, maybe there's an afterlife, his wife reported this, A.J. has gotten so much nicer since he died. (laughs) Love that. And then A.J. died for good a year later, actually. Well, despite the variety of ways that you can die chronicled in this book, uh, to his credit, Critchley ends with a quote from Epicurus, uh, the ancient Greek philosopher, who highlights the certainty of death. He says what? Against all other things, it is possible to obtain security. Think about this. But when it comes to death, we human beings live in an unwalled city. He's right. There's really nothing more powerful than death, even <laughs> Nuclear arms, even tornadoes, you know, you can, you can escape those. You have the possibility of surviving certain things. Death, 100%. He's right. We don't have a wall that can protect us from that. But thanks be to God, because of Jesus, death is not the end, but only the beginning. Now, some of you know how I summarize the gospel. It, it's based on a text that I sent to a student who actually texted me right at the beginning of the last service. But, but he kept texting me, and never should have given him my number, but he kept texting me about every problem under the sun he was facing, whether it was a girl, his car, grades, whatever. And I finally got exasperated, got tired of it. And in that moment of frustration, I texted two words, and I wasn't even thinking about it, but to this day, it's kind of my mantra each and every day, especially when I'm going through a difficult time. Does anybody know what, it, what the two words are by any chance? Tomb's empty. Tomb's empty. And that's the best of news, and really, that's the message 
of David's psalm in Psalm 16, it's a really a prophetic word that points to the resurrection of Jesus, points to the empty tomb. Again, it was a part of his first sermon, and it speaks of our security in Christ. Now, if you want, and it's just totally up to you, in the middle here we have an outline. I have three points to this, like a good Baptist preacher always should. And if you want to follow with that, great. If not, no worries. you got... Uh, Scripture passages on the screen, but they're there. But notice, and, and that was on purpose. Do you see something a little weird about the order? It's three, two, one. Uh, that's on purpose. These are in ascending order. Uh, the most important point really is the final one, and that's why it's three, two, one. And again, we're talking about the fruit of Christ's resurrection. And first of all, the fruit of it is that we are reborn. Let's look at Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, because this is what Peter winds up quoting in Acts chapter 2, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. Think about this. This is Peter who experienced the resurrection of Jesus. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. Again, it's speaking of the security that Christ brings, and Peter is quoting it about that ultimate security that you find through Jesus. You know, Ephesians 1 talks about the exceedingness of God's power. Again, there's nothing more powerful in this world than death. Nothing comes close. It's batting a thousand, and it will continue to do so. None of us can escape it. That's why Jesus came and passed through it for you and for me, which is why Peter says to the crowd, let's go to Acts 2, 24. You nailed him to a cross and killed him, but God released him from the horrors of death. I'm going to go back to that. We are reborn. He released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. I want you to look at that phrase, the horrors of death. Fascinating. Uh, Some translations call it the agony of death. He was released from the agony of death, the pain of death. Probably the best translation of this particular phrase is from the ESV, the English Standard Version. It says, the pangs of death. Why is that important? In the Greek, the phrase, the pangs of death, is tas odinas tu fanatu. What does that mean? It means literally the birth pangs of death. That's what it means. It's so cool. Uh, The word odinas there is the word, it's a feminine noun referring to birth pangs. I just love that. The agony that Jesus went through, in a sense, was the agony of birth pangs of the new life that he can offer to you and to me. He was offering new birth. Now, and he went through such agony, and you know that. I think men don't always appreciate the agony of childbirth. True story. My older half-brother, John, bless his heart, uh, his uh, wife, Jan, bless her heart even more, had been giving birth to my nephew, Drew, had been in labor for 24 hours. Doctor comes in right at the 24-hour point and just says, I think it'll be just a little longer. And he leaves. At that point, John, who is right beside Jan, who's lying there in agony, right? In Odinus, right? And John, after the doctor leaves, 24 hours, he sits down in a chair right there and says, Oh, my feet hurt. <laughs> no. Uh, If he had been within another half inch, he would no longer have a carotid artery. But anyway, uh, just not smart. But sometimes men don't appreciate the pain that women face. But again, in all seriousness, do you and I again today, I hope, even as we celebrate the empty tomb, appreciate the pain that Jesus faced, the pangs that he faced 
for us so that we might be born anew. It's really cool. You know, they were birth pangs. Uh, it was cool that we baptized. Where's Drew? A- Andrew, rather. Where are you, Andrew? Oh, he's right there with us. It was cool baptizing you today. And what's neat is you've probably heard before about baptistries being both a tomb and a womb because when I baptized him, it was as if you were being uh, uh, dead to sin but then raised to new life in Christ. What was it you said just before I dipped you? You said Jesus is Lord. You said it perfectly. And then uh, it's like death to sin, raised to new life. So a lot of people say that this is like a tomb and a womb. Well, in a sense, Jesus' own tomb was a womb, that by his suffering and death it became a womb by which we wound up being spiritually reborn if we give our lives to him. And if if you want to stretch it even further, stretch that metaphor a bit further, um, uh, whatever we're going to wind up being buried in really is not just a tomb, it's a womb as we will be brought to newness of life. We're given rebirth. We're given new bodies, uh, which leads me to Demi Lee Brennan. I don't know how many of y'all heard about her story. She's an, uh, a 15-year-old Australian, and in 2008, she went through this fascinating experience. She had this life-threatening disease, had to have a transplant, an organ transplant, and she's the first known transplant patient to change blood types. Think about that. Uh, she went from O negative to O positive, and she took on the immune system of her donor. And at first, doctors thought that that, that really couldn't have, have happened. But then they realized, yes, it did happen, and they call it the one in six billion miracle. So she has this new, entirely different kind of blood, and it's a blood that welcomes life instead of carrying death as she had had. Well, you see, you see the analogy there, and she said, it's my second chance at life. Well, you and I have that second chance as well because of the resurrection, and we're part of a miracle of new life, and, and I would say it's better than a one in six billion miracle. The chances of a God who cared enough about you and me that he stepped out of eternity, which he didn't have to do, stepped into our world in the form of his son, suffered what he did on our behalf, died on our behalf, rose on our behalf, offers us eternal life. That's better than a one in six billion miracle that you and I don't deserve at all, but thanks be to God, he gives it to us. He gives it to us. But there's another fruit of the resurrection. Yeah, we're reborn. But secondly, the fruit of Christ's resurrection is that we are his witnesses. Let's look at verse 32 in Acts chapter 2. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now, Peter is not talking about all the crowd. There's some of them probably are hearing about this thing for the first time. And he's not just talking about the people there who actually saw Jesus in his risen state during those 40 days before his ascension. No, he's talking about those who are believers. And really what he's doing is he's talking about the church. Well, that includes you and me. In other words, we are to be his witnesses. And keep in mind, we are to be his witnesses, not just to witness. Going back to uh, Acts 1-8, what is it? We know this one well because it's really the basis of how we do missions here, which we're big on at Brookwood. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will witness to others. No, what does it say? You will be my witnesses. Yeah, voice it, declare it, proclaim it, but live it out. The way Jesus lived, you lived. The way he loved others, even the most difficult people to love, you love. The things that went against uh, public approval, public acclaim, that he said or did, you do the same. And that's easier said than done. Now, Stephen Ray, he didn't want to take credit for it, but he came up to me after the first service and said, I got this quote from somewhere, I don't know where, but I'd never thought of this. Put it up there, Stephen. The word missionary is not in the Bible. The word witness is. 
Let me take it a step further, by the way. What is, what is the word witness in the Greek? It's martis. It's where we get the word what? Martyr. Being willing to sacrifice of yourself, die to yourself, be brought to new life and take a stand for it. How willing are you to do that? Because there are places in the world right now where that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Just the other day, uh, it, it was Friday. It was Good Friday, of all things. I was reading a piece uh, on CNN on- online, and it was a story that was suggesting how difficult it is to be a Christian over in the Middle East, which was, ironically, the birth of the Christian faith. But many of these specialists who were being interviewed, they were saying, you know, that the chances seem to become more and more slim that it's going to survive in the Middle East because of the violence and the persecution. And, and, and it referred to the, the bombings last week in Tonga and Alexandria, Egypt. It went on and talked about uh, persecuted Christians in Syria and Iran and Iraq. And one of the primary specialists, I, I just remember looking at the quote, And this is what he said. He said, it is hard to predict how many Christians will be killed this year, but it seems likely that they will remain the number one target of religious persecution. Believing that a man named Jesus Christ was crucified and rose again for the sins of the world is still one of the most dangerous things one can do in many parts of the world. So are you and I willing to be his witnesses, his martises, his martyrs in certain ways? Whether or not we give up our lives, we give up certain things. Easier said than done. We're called, the tough part, too, is how we're called to love everyone, everyone, even the ones who are most difficult to love. I so appreciated um, Marla Quartz bringing uh, Philip Yancey recently. Uh, to, many of us went to that, uh, to the Tom and Marla Quartz speaker series over at Sanford just, just a few weeks ago. And he was phenomenal, and he's a tremendous writer, as you well know. And I remember him uh, talking about, uh, not in that context, but in another context, the first time that he met Henry Nouwen, and you've heard me talk about Henry Nouwen a lot, and he said the first time he met Henry Nouwen, Henry Nouwen had just returned from being at a place where being a Christian, just to be a Christian was to face a whole lot of antagonism and antipathy, just where he was going. And he wondered if he would be effective as he ministered, but he said, as the days went along, he said, I could tell I was making a difference even among these people who would deem me an opponent, an enemy, whatever. And, and, he, and Philip Yancey asked him, well, what, what changed? And he said, I really attribute it to my prayers. He said, my prayers changed while I was there. He said, it was really strange because as I talked to these people, even the ones who seemed to just be completely dead to the gospel or, or even against it, and angry when I would talk about it, he said, and, and as Henry Nowen put it, I kept hearing hints of a thirst for divine love. Hints of a thirst for divine love. And Nowen then said this to Philip Yancey. He said, from then on, whenever I am in a place where I can sense antipathy towards the gospel, I pray, God, help me to see others, not as my enemies or as ungodly, but rather as thirsty people. And give me the courage and compassion to offer your living water, which alone quenches deep thirst. It's not easy, but we're called to be his witnesses, more than missionaries. We're called to be his witnesses. What he said, we say. What he did, we do. Do we see our enemies as thirsty people whom we can reach, even if they don't seem to care at all? Even if they're not thirsty, we are still called to reach them as best we can because they need the saving knowledge of the gospel. So the fruit of Christ's resurrection is that we are reborn and that we are his witnesses. And finally, and most importantly, Christ is exalted. 
Ultimately, this is all about him. It's not about us. You and I are graced just to be a part of this amazing story. Let's look at verse 33. It says, Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us. Remember, this is Pentecost Day. Just as you see and hear today, and you can still see and hear the work of the Spirit today, that same Spirit that was poured out upon those people in a powerful way resides in you and me. Can we take advantage of that on occasion and trust that God's going to do amazing things? We glorify Him for this gift that He gave us, a gift we can never adequately repay. Now, I want you to remember, God doesn't need our exaltation. It's not like up there, oh, come on, exalt me a little more. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. It doesn't make Him any richer. It makes you and me richer as we have the blessed opportunity just to give him praise and glory and honor and thanks. Which leads me to, you can't talk about Easter Sunday without talking about Dave. Um, some time ago, David Letterman invited a band. Have you all ever heard of Sixpence, Sixpence None the Richer? Anybody heard of that group? Really good group. Anybody heard of it? Sixpence none the richer. Okay, young people, okay. Uh, Sixpence none the richer. And they went and performed on Letterman. Uh, and, and they were so good that Letterman called the lead singer, who, who's Lee Nash, who's the uh, woman there, and, and called her over to sit and talk for just a second afterwards. He usually doesn't do that, but he did that because he really enjoyed their song. Well, the first question he asked her was, where did you get this name, Sixpence None the Richer? And it gave her a chance really in a sense, to testify. And she told about C.S. Lewis's story where they got it, which is about a father who gave his son a sixpence so that he, the son, could buy the father a present with the sixpence that the father gave him. And obviously, you know, it didn't make the father any richer when the son gave him, gave him the gift, at least materially speaking. And she said, yeah, Dave, it's an analogy of God who gives gifts. You know, we get a chance to glorify him, and he's not richer. We are, though. So that's why we are sixpence not none the richer. God is like sixpence none the richer. But we are richer as we give him praise. And I thought it was cool the way Letterman responded. And I got, got it in text. He said, that's a beautiful story. If people could stop being so stupid and actually hear that and live by that sort of thing, then our world would be a better place. God bless you and thank you for being here. Well, nice reception. Of course, he had to be kind of neutral and you know, lukewarm and all that. But wouldn't it be great if, if Letterman, somebody like him, were willing to thank God in a way that really gives God praise and glory? You know, uh, it, it, you know, God wouldn't be any richer if he did, but David Letterman would be and anybody else would be if they were willing to do that. Because you realize that God offers you a gift that cannot be repaid. Such reason to exalt him then. And I love how David, of course, he exalts God in that Psalm 16. He does it in so many different Psalms too. And I just love, he uses the word exalt so much for God, realizing that ultimately, you know, God, and if he had known, God in Christ is really what it's all about. Just look at a a few of his Psalms here, you know. I exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. Next one, Psalm 57, 5. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. Are you willing to give thanks to God, not just on Easter Sunday, but every day, and exalt him as you go along, even through the difficult times? Are you willing to exalt him as the tomb is empty? David knew that. At least he knew enough to know he needed to exalt God And then that wonderful passage of his pointed to the empty tomb eventually. 
Do you thank God every day, give him glory every day, exalt him every day for that gift that is Easter? And I couldn't help but think, and I can't remember if I've talked about this before, but I think about the 2015 commencement speech uh, that Denzel Washington, of all people, gave at Dillard University. He has become a little more bold in in sharing his faith in different contexts. And, And I just got a little snippet about what he said to the students here at Dillard University. He said, put God first in everything you do. Everything that I have is by the grace of God. Understand that. It's a gift. I didn't always stick with him, but he stuck with me. While you're on your knees, say thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance for what is already yours, which is really all his. True desire in the heart For anything good is God's proof to you sent beforehand that's already yours. But realize that it's all his, he says. And when you get it, reach back, pull someone else up. Then keep giving thanks as you press on. That's how you exalt him. I want to close with Peter's quote of Psalm 16. Because this really says, first and foremost, it's all about exalting God and his son, Jesus. And this is what it says. King David said this about him in Psalm 16. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead, tombs empty. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We are reborn because of your son's grace, O God. And Jesus, we give you thanks for having experienced all of the pain, all of the pangs that led to our opportunity to be born again through you. We give you thanks that we have the opportunity to witness on your behalf and be witnesses. We thank you that we have the blessed opportunity to exalt you, though you don't need it. But we are so blessed to do it, just to be a part of this, oh God. We give you thanks. And we pray that we would do whatever we need to do to be your witnesses in the world that others might come to know of your grace. Help us to see all people as thirsty, even if they don't appear to be, and even if they genuinely are not spiritually thirsty. We are called to go and be your witnesses. Thank you for the empty tomb and all that it means for us. May we exalt you daily because of it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.